It's not easy to attract and book ultra-luxury clients. It's even harder to do it on scale, where you're not the only one delivering services. It takes a system, and it takes a team to get it all done. This week, I talked with Shannon Leahy, a planner who's received just about every accolade you can imagine in the wedding industry. But the one she's most proud of? Building a team that serves clients at the highest level. On today's episode of Own Your Business, Shannon and I talk about how she got her start as a wedding planner. Big mistakes and lessons learned from those early years, and how she's managed to create a company bigger than herself. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Shannon Leahy is on the podcast today. I'm so excited. If you all have not heard, Shannon and I did a podcast together. We recorded like seven or eight months ago, and I think it came out in the summer, uh, Fast Track for Planner Referrals. Shannon, you offered a ton of really great insight, but I've called you back today because I want to hear a little bit more about what it's like to own your business and also how you got where you're at so that people can have a good perspective of what it takes to reach the top. Because let's be honest, you're, uh, I would say, at the top of the field. You are in that top echelon, and I want to dig in a little bit to not just what it's like there now, but what it took to get there. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I love listening to your podcast. I recommend it to everyone I know. I say, go listen to it, but also don't listen to it because Sam gives away too much good, valuable business advice and I don't want other people to know it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know what? It's true. It's, it's true. I know my, my wife tells me the same thing, Shannon. She's like, quit giving it all away for free. Nobody's going to pay us anything if you keep giving it all away for free. The good stuff is in your podcast. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that I love about our friendship is that it was formed in, uh, you know, uh, an, an interesting way. Uh, you and I met when we were at a workshop in France. Uh, I first learned about your steadiness in uh, the calm of uh, stressful environments when you were navigating a van full of people and cargo through Paris on our way to the Chateau. And I was immediately impressed. Uh, what I love most is that you were always curious about how to make your business better. And every little minute of downtime that you had and I was around, you were always like, hey, let me ask you a question about this. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, was, it was good. And it, it just... I'm always excited to learn from people with different perspectives. Yeah, well, good. Well, we're, we're, I'm going to learn about you today and your business uh, journey. And uh, before we jump into it, for those of you who are listening that don't know Shannon, Shannon, could you provide a little bit of background on what you do and, and what kind of work you, you have uh, with your company? Yes. Our business is event design and planning. Mostly we do weddings, but we also do social events baby showers and birthday parties and things like that for our longstanding long-term clients. 
I absolutely love what I do. I have an incredible team of, of women, although we'd love to get some more men in our ranks who are just so smart and so talented and so good at their jobs. Any one of them individually would be, I think, the best wedding planner in the country. And I'm so lucky that we all get to come together and they work with me. And we also have um, a floral design division as well. So we do in-house floral. Victoria and Marianne run that. They're phenomenal. Um, that's something we've grown and added over the years. So yeah, we do 25 to 30 full planning major, um, very high budget weddings a year. Um, and then we do parties in addition to that. So boutique company, but I think larger in the kind of high end space compared to a lot of other of my peers. Yeah. And I want to hear more about the way that you've managed to build a business that can do luxury and not just six to eight events a year. That's something that I know is a, a, a common refrain for people who are in luxury that you can't duplicate luxury or have other people do it. And I can't wait to hear more about it as we get into the episode. You have an office in San Francisco and also in Baltimore, is that right? Yeah, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and now Baltimore. Um, we have our, our headquarters is in San Francisco, right in the city. We, our floral studio headquarters is in Oakland. We have um, an LA office, and then there's three of us actually in the Baltimore, DC area as well now. So, including me, um, I split my time between the West Coast and the East Coast, but uh, our family is kind of rooted in Maryland now, which is a big change in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's go back to where it all began. One of my favorite questions that I've had over the last several weeks of interviewing some of the best in the industry like you is how did you get your start in planning or design, you know, and go back to like, I was talking with a videographer earlier this morning and he was telling me a story about when he was, you know, pre-teens. You know, what, what was it that, that you remember most about that formative moment of, you know what, I kind of like doing planning or design. Yeah. I remember exactly when that was. And, um, it was in high school. I was a decent student, similar to you, I think, Sam, very curious and, and engaged in the topics that I was interested in and not so much in the things that I wasn't, which made me a pretty average overall student, honestly, um, back in high school. And my senior year, I think it was there, we had our high school had a fundraiser called Mr. GQ. It was a beauty pageant for men, uh, like, like a Miss America for men, for boys in order to raise um, charity, money for charity. Sorry, I can't speak right now. I got to plan it my senior year. So I was passed the binder to plan this event. And the planning of the event involved recruiting participants, selling tickets, getting a local tuxedo shop to rent tuxedos, working with the lighting team and the staging team, writing a script. It was really producing a show. And I fell so deeply in love with it that that's where all of my energy went senior year instead of my academics and schoolwork. Luckily, I still did get into college, but you know, went into producing this. I just loved it. And I was like, I think there's a future for me in some kind of events production or theater production. I thought it was, it just ticked every box for me and watching it all come together was so rewarding. So that's when I knew that there was going to be a future for me in events. 
And so you poured your heart and soul and all of the, all of the opportunity costs for math and science and history and geography into uh, event planning as a senior. Did you carry that forward into college? Did you then yes. decide to pursue it formally? I did. So all of my internships throughout college were um, in the event space. I was an art history major. I always loved the arts. And so I worked at museums um, doing events for you know, art museums. I did it for the aquarium. I even worked in the fundraising office at my college. I think you mentioned that you did too, Sam, but doing events with them. And I just, I loved it. So it was all I did um, when I graduated after college. My very first job was working for a nonprofit called Conservation International. And it was based in DC. And I was split in kind of two jobs between the events department and the major gifts office. So my job had two functions. One was helping to plan these events and going on site. One of the big ways that this organization raised money was through these galas. There was one in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. I got to travel around and produce these big galas and that was awesome. But the bigger part of my job when I wasn't doing that was in the major gifts office. And my job was receiving the checks filling out the paperwork and writing a personalized thank you note to these top donors, which I was very good at for like two or three months and then got very bored with immediately because it was the same thing every day. Receive the check, fill out paperwork, write the thank you note, on and on and on. So obviously I started procrastinating and not paying attention to those checks very closely and not paying attention to those thank you notes very closely. And let's just say when you're working with billionaires, as donors, there's only so many times you can like misspell their name in a thank you note because you're not paying attention before that job is not a fit for you anymore. So that got fired from my first job, which was devastating, Sam. It sucks <laughs> being fired. It's so scary. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I had loved the events part, but I was shell-shocked. And so I decided to move to California. You're, you just left town. You didn't ask for the whole story. Here's the whole story. <laughs> So I moved to California and I decided to just be really open to like whatever job seemed appealing. So I applied for three jobs. I applied to work at the Apple store because I like Apple computers. I applied to work at a sailing school because I like sailing. And I applied to a Craigslist ad for this mystery job that was like, all these random qualifications, must love events and design and flowers, um, must love dogs, must be computer savvy. It was like this random list that I was like, that sounds like me. And it turned out to be um, one of the top event designers in the Bay Area who did floral and event design, corporate, social, nonprofit. And um, when I realized what the company was, because it wasn't listed in the initial ad, it was just, again, these random qualifications. I was like, oh my God, this is it. I want this job so badly. So I went out there and interviewed. I remember I wore a white suit. It was very chic. What year was this? 2007. Okay. I had a white blazer and white pants and heels. And I walked into the office and I had bought a book. The job was to be the owner's executive assistant. And I had bought a book while driving across country and ordered it or something and was reading it called um, How to Be a Kick-Ass Executive Assistant. And so I read the whole book before I got to the interview and I walked into the interview and she said, well, how do you know anything about being an assistant? You've never done this before. And um, so I pulled the book out of my bag and I like slammed it on the table. <laughs> I was like, I don't, but I read this book. <laughs> and so I got the job. And so before I knew it, I was sitting in on meetings with 
brides and planners because we had partnered with planners. She was a floral designer, an event designer, partnered with planners and really was thrown into the world of producing really beautiful high-end events. She taught me everything she knew. She, Nicole Stillapair was her name, incredibly, incredibly talented, creative designer. And I really thought I was drawn to the planning side of things. And I told her I want to be a planner, not more than probably a year into working there. Along came a client who walked in the door that said, um, well, I understand that you're the planner. And we were not, as I said, we were the floral designers. And she said, yep, we're the planners. And I was like looking at her like, what are you crazy? We're not planners. So that people left. I'm like, why'd you tell them that? And she said, well, you want to be a planner. Now's your chance. So what did I do? I bought a book on how to plan a wedding. Thank you, Mindy Weiss. It had just come out, I think, around that time. And I literally taught myself how to be a wedding planner and got this crash course while working for her. And my first wedding I planned was like a half a million dollar destination wedding, which in 2008 was a lot of money, still is, and kind of got thrown into weddings from there. You didn't really fake it till you make it in the traditional sense. <laughs> you just decided you were going to be amazing at whatever it was that opportunity threw your way. You wanted to tackle the biggest, toughest, hardest challenge you possibly could. And it sounds like you started with a, a big opportunity and a big challenge, half a million dollar wedding destination. Each of those on their own would be challenging, but you did both of them and you were without a role model. Well, I did have the safety net of my boss at the time, of course, which was great. Who had a long career, but neither of us were wedding planners at the time. So we really, you know, all of those systems of how to put together a wedding budget and how to make a planning timeline and all of that stuff I had to create on the fly while doing this major project in a short timeline. So yeah, it was, I love that though. Like I love a challenge. I know you do. And I, and I know that, <laughs> and, and I know that's something that like, it excites you, right? Like if it was easy, it wouldn't be interesting. Yes. I'm curious, as, you know, as you're talking, it sounds like you didn't go to the traditional model where you looked around you or looked ahead of you to see how to do it yourself. You, you know, you had some of that, I, I'm sure, but you really, it sounds like, learned based on what were, what were the needs and then you designed a solution to that need. What was the problem that we were working through? What was the system that we could create to, to do this well? It wasn't like you took somebody else's blueprint and then tweaked it. You were, you were going through and going, oh, this is what makes logical, practical sense for this to be efficient and effective. And I'm going to do it this way because I, I see that it works. Yeah. I mean, I think like you, Sam, I really get excited by puzzles and complex problems that you have to break down and, and figure out. And so um, that's kind of what I love so much about business in general that intrigues me about business. It is like this big puzzle and challenge that there really aren't instructions Two, that you have to figure out. And that's what I love so much about planning weddings is every single wedding is different. And again, there's no playbook. You get your systems in place, but figuring it all out is part of the job. I think it's actually the most important part of the job. It's the quality I look for when we hire more than any other is figure it out in this. Can you figure mm -hmm. out how to do something without knowing how? And we throw people into situations quickly where they have to figure it out and they sink or swim at our company. And it becomes apparent very quickly who's going to make it and who's not. Cause I think that's what you have to do in this job. And is that what you saw in the environment that you were in, in 2007, it was sink or swim. I, I mean, if you're working for the best, <laughs> there's, there's probably there's, you know, here's a hundred pound weight. See if you can carry it on your way down. A otherwise don't waste my time. Right. Yeah. I think my, um, Nicole's, 
philosophy was always say yes and figure out how to do it later. Yeah. Jump off the cliff and build the parachute on the way down. Exactly. Yeah. Those, those who survive will have to do it again. Yeah. How long did this go on? How long were you doing the planning for the design company before you struck out on your own? For a short time, actually, it felt like I learned a lifetime's worth of lessons and, you know, in great ways and working for her. But on paper, it was only about two and a half years. I had planned a few weddings from her. And then, you know, as someone who's very ambitious, I quickly realized that the two paths here were to either become a partner with her eventually. And she'd been doing this for 10 years and I was 23 and that seemed like it wasn't going to happen anytime soon or to start my own business. Both my parents have their own business businesses. So that was always something I thought I would one day do. So I started telling everyone around me, like, I'm going to have my own wedding planning business one day. And lo and behold, one of my friends that told her friend who was engaged that she knew this great up and coming wedding planner and that they should interview me. And I said, but I'm not on my own yet. And she said, we'll just talk to them. So I went and I talked to them. Sam, you'll love this because it's sales. So I went and I talked to them and we had this lovely conversation. I had planned a wedding at the venue where they were getting married before. They seemed like an ideal fit. We had a great conversation and they said, thank you, but no, thank you. And um, my husband, who was working for Salesforce at the time, and they do a lot of sales training there, you know, I told him, oh, bummer, that wasn't going to work out. I guess it wasn't meant to be. And he said, you know, a salesman's job begins when the prospect first says no. And I was like, what? Because we'd always been like, oh, we're not a fit. No problem. He said, write back and see what the problem was. You know, why did they not choose you? So I wrote a nice letter back and they responded and they said, we actually loved you and we wanted to hire you. But we found someone else that was a little bit cheaper. I think I wanted to charge them $4,000 for full planning and design. And they, um, someone else was going to charge them $3,500. And so I said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for $3,500. And they said, great. And so they hired me. And then I turned around to my boyfriend, now husband, and said, oh, my God, I have to quit my job. <laughs> I didn't think this through. <laughs> what do I have to think? What am I doing? So I think I had $2,000 in savings plus this deposit and realized I had to quit my job and start my own company, which I was not prepared to do, but had to jump in and do. And so uh, I was able to, you know, utilize a lot of my connections to do a lot of freelance work and connect with a lot of venues that I had worked with that knew me and tell them, Hey, I'm available to do these smaller planning jobs and started to get a lot of referrals. I think I had six or eight weddings that first year, smaller ones, but yeah. And you just said yes to whatever you could. I mean, clearly $4,000 for full service planning, even back in 2009, 2010 was not a lot of, not a lot of money. Uh, although coming out of the great recession and starting off on your own, did you have kind of a say yes to everything early on in your, in, in your business as, as a strategy? In the beginning, absolutely. I was thrilled to kind of take anything I could. By the way, that first couple tipped me $500 at the end of the project. I thought that was funny. Yeah, so I definitely did say yes to everything in the beginning. And I did have the benefit of in 2009 when I started, it was right out of the recession. So people were, a lot of people were looking for a, kind of a lower cost alternative. And one of the things I did know how to do was design. And I had a lot of great vendor relationships so one of the first things I did was um, some styled shoots, which is super commonplace now. Everybody does that. But in 2009, 
Nobody did that. That was not a thing. Martha Stewart did that in her spreads. An average person didn't just create a photo shoot. But I did a few of them. And I remember the first one that I did was um, St. Patrick's Day themed. And it was a very sophisticated wedding that was very Irish. It was beautiful. I still think it was it's pretty today. And um, I did the flowers myself. And it was on the homepage of Style Me Pretty for three straight days, which in 2009 was like a major deal because that was all anybody looked at was this blog, Style Me Pretty, which nobody even knows what it is anymore, probably. So um, I started getting jobs through that too. And that kind of- so That was a bit of a break then that you had. Yeah. So hard work, willingness to take on risk, taking on challenges that maybe other people wouldn't, saying yes to opportunities that were right there, saying yes to anything that was that was really there in the beginning. I'm always curious, you know, going back to 2009, Shannon, what was it that appealed most about starting your own company? I mean, it sounds like there's a few different things that are kind of at play, but what was the big driver for you? I mean, for me at the time, it was really about flexibility. I remember that my boyfriend and I, now husband and I, um, were in a ski lease that was really important to us was being able to go ski in the winter and work from wherever and just be able, being able to make my own schedule. I've always really valued the freedom to make your own schedule and choose your own work. And I think, again, that's something at our company that we've really collected people who also value that. That's a huge benefit of working for us is the ability to make your own schedule and pick your work. And, and you know, that's important to me. So that was the main driver at the time, more even than the money. Although, mm -hmm. you know, obviously always been motivated to be successful in that way too. Yeah. You know, there, there's some things that are not competing, but at play here. Uh, you know, the idea of autonomy, independence, freedom um, is something that I, I hear quite a bit when I ask professionals that question uh, achievement, which you just said, right. Of, of going through, whether it's money or meeting some measure of success or getting on the, you know, above the fold for three days in a row with Sammy Pretty. Those are things that, that oftentimes drive people. And it's not easy to leave a cushy job working for a great designer where you've got an opportunity to do things you love, but at the same time, it can be stifling in some other areas that are important. And so I think it's great that you, that you found that you could do that with your own business. Was it all rainbows and unicorns and, and leprechauns with your St. Patrick's Day style shoot uh, when you first got started or did you run into some struggles out of the gates? Oh my gosh, I have such rose-colored glasses, Sam. I mean, of course there were struggles. There's always struggles in wedding planning and in, um, in business, I think. But I feel pretty lucky in those first few years. I had a lot of awesome clients. I was able to get things published in magazines and blogs and stuff, which was really much more the currency then than now. And that helped to kind of bring my name further into people's minds. Nothing stands out as like an initial huge struggle, except for maybe hiring my first employee was a really scary thing. Tell um, me more about that. Employees can be, especially the first ones, terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I had some great freelancers that were helping me part-time in those first few years. And I was able to piece together those schedules until I realized that I was effectively paying a salary of a full-time employee for these different part-time people that were helping me. So I put ads out and interviewed and found someone that I thought was going to be a good fit and was, I think I maybe had even 
sent her the job offer, if not the job contract, probably hadn't gotten to the contract stage. And then I realized like that what it means to have an employee, like you have to set up payroll and pay taxes and you have all these responsibilities. And the whole thing freaked me out so much that I like reneged that offer from that poor girl and didn't hire her. And it was another six months or a year until I actually said, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to jump. And I've always been very, very conservative, especially with overhead, whether that's rent, equipment, um, employees in the beginning, especially, I like to keep my overhead costs really low. So anyway, by the time I hired my first employee though, Elise, who is now my partner and creative director of the company, and she's been with me for almost 10 years she is an absolute rock star and it was meant to be that she was the person. So I'm so glad. I'm sure the first role would have been lovely, but I'm so glad it was Elise in the end. That was a struggle. That was really stressful. Do you feel like you've gotten more used to or confident or comfortable in your role as an employer picking up that overhead? It's, it's tough. It's tough to get used to. Have you gotten used to it? And if so, what were some of the things that that helped get you there? Yeah, I mean, the financial implications of it, I'm definitely used to now since we've been doing it for a while. And I think that, you know, when you're going back to your question of why did you go out on your own, it was one part freedom. And it was another part, it was financially motivated in the sense that I sort of saw at the prior company how much work I was doing and how little of the pie I was getting right? How, how little. And I had asked for raises and I wasn't really getting them. So that's another big value for me is that we pay very, very, very well because our employees are everything. And I think that that's a mistake that a lot of people in this industry make is devaluing and paying their employees not much money because it's this glamorous job or, you know, the quality of life is good or whatever. And that's how you, you know, lose people and have high turnover. So you're taking some of the lessons that worked and also some of the things that didn't work when you were an employee. And now you're trying to either write those or continue those as you employ your own team. Do you um, do you run into struggles with your team members or, or have you in the past of, you know, hiring somebody who's independent that you can put a lot of responsibility on, but not have to provide a lot of oversight to, you want to give them enough room to run, but you don't want them to run away. So how do you maintain that balance with freedom yet loyalty? I just think what's most important when you're, when you have employees is figuring out what motivates them. Is it achievement? Is it having a work-life balance? Is it the money? Is it just working with nice clients? Like what is the thing that makes this person tick? And the more you can give them that, why would they ever leave? If they're getting paid as much as they want to get paid, if they have the lifestyle they want, hopefully you're, you know, unless they have some people, and I think I fall into this category, just want to have their own business at the end of the day. There's always going to be someone that's just, they want to have their own business. And I'm sure that maybe some of them work for me now or will in the future and I'll get those people and they will go off and start their own businesses. But I think most people, if you satisfy all of their demands or their desires, they have no reason to. You know, one of the other motivators that moves people to do things is risk and to lower risk. And I think you're right. A lot of, a lot of people out there like us are driven to be leaders or to do our own thing. And there's a lot more people who are interested in the safety and security of a 
biweekly paycheck and knowing that they don't have to push them outside of a comfort zone or a skill set that they currently have. Uh, you know, your story of driving across country with like, I could, I could see you in your car leaving DC going, how did I get fired from the stupid job signing thank you notes? And and now you're like, how to be a kick-ass executive assistant. I'm going to be the best kick-ass executive assistant ever. That's not a common personality trait. It, you know, most people aren't going to drive across the country and read a book on the way to go and work for some famous designer and, you know, want to be the best. And, and you know, however many weeks later, go and ask for a raise because you deserve it, right? Like that's, but that's who you are. I do think that there are a lot of people in the wedding industry that are, are uncomfortable owning their business and would rather work in a really cool environment. They didn't, they didn't want to start their business. They just didn't want to work for the company that they were working at before, or maybe the boss that they were working at before. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of success that can be had by planners who like you many years ago, were looking to grow your company uh, to attract people with a great culture and with more than just money. Uh, and instead creating an environment that really fosters warmth and, and engagement within the community. In the beginning, I definitely wasn't looking to build my team. In fact, referencing what you said earlier about how a lot of planners and companies do the six to eight weddings, that was always my goal and my vision. I was like, I'm going to do six to eight super high-end weddings. I'm going to charge a lot of money. I'm going to be the creative visionary. I'm going to have this second in command who does a lot of the grunt work that I don't want to do. And that's what my life is going to look like. And that's what I always thought. But I hired Elise and it turns out Elise is a kick-ass, amazing assistant at the time who didn't want to be an assistant forever um, because she was driven and motivated. And we had a lot of friction in those early years because she wanted to take on her own projects. And that was not my vision for the company. And I remember saying to my husband, a big theme is how awesome my husband is at advice. I remember saying to him, like, I think I might have to fire Elise because she doesn't want to do the job that I want her to do. She wants to do this different thing. I'm not comfortable with that. And my husband said, Shannon, A's hire A's. And an A is never going to want to be your assistant forever. You can hire a B who's going to want to be your assistant forever, but they're going to do B work. Give her a shot. And so I, I did. I let her do the project, and it turned out that she was amazing at it, and the clients were thrilled. And I was like, wait a minute. This is actually a lot easier than having to do all of the planning myself. I can have other people do the planning who are excellent at it that I've trained, and that's kind of how that began. But that was never my vision in the beginning. And did you continue to add A's to your team yes. to the point where you had to go out and find more work for them? Is that a driver in the growth then? Yeah. In fact, we definitely have more work than people because it turns out finding someone who is, you know, has a great design eye and is type A enough to run an event and a leader and a, you know, has exquisite taste and sophistication and can you know, all of the things that it takes to do this job and also doesn't mind being the person sweeping up the floors and helping a bride use the toilet and doing all the service. Like there's a lot of this job that isn't glamorous and that is a rare person to find. And it, once you find them, you still have to train them in how we want things to operate in our system. So it takes a while to build those people. I, I wish I could, I could hire six of them tomorrow. I probably have the business for them. Frankly, I could go out and get the business, Sam, you know, 
we can find ways to recruit and get that business and sell it, but I don't have those people. It takes a while. It does. And oftentimes slower is better than faster, right? Fast is, fast is slow and slow is smooth, especially when it comes to you know, big budgets and big expectations for your clients and uh, very little tolerance for failure. There, there's no do-overs. And it's, uh, it's a lot of trust that we put into your team members, especially as planners at this, this level of the game. When you're going through and thinking about the kind of work that you do now, I'm curious with the team that you have and you know the the requirements of owning an operation of your size. What percentage of your time is actually spent planning or designing weddings now, as compared with other parts of the business? Right, a lot less. Ten percent. Ten percent. Probably could be four or five hours a week is spent planning designing. On average, yeah, maybe a little bit more than that. And I wish there was more because I love doing the design, but I'm doing less and less projects where I'm the lead. At this point, I'm really only doing three projects a year where I'm the lead because the rest of my time goes into running the business and managing the team and, you know, obviously coaching them through their designs and their planning and all of that. Um, but Elise does a big part of that too, is managing partner. So she shares a lot of that burden. So yeah, a lot less. You know, it's interesting. When I worked in restaurants, I was in restaurants from 94 as a busser at the local Holiday Inn uh, up through 2006 when I moved into weddings. And, you know, I I remember making the move from serving tables to managing a, a, a bar and grill. And my boss at the time told me it's very different work. And I didn't realize it until I got into it. But managing people is a complete different skill set and and passion than doing the technical or creative work that that you are now managing how was the transition going from probably 90% of your time planning or or at least you know a full work week of planning and designing to really working on the business and managing people and administering the the day-to-day operations yeah it's something that i think I'm at a point where I could further my education and where I need to go buy the how to be a kick-ass boss book or whatever Um, (laughs) and study that. I always love a new challenge. So developing the business, developing the people is a new challenge for me. Whereas it's been 15 years of planning and designing weddings. I can do that in my sleep and I still enjoy doing that, I should say, but I like the challenge of it. But, you know, I'm also aware that my skill set is realistically kind of being the visionary and where is the business going and business development and sales and sort of bringing the business in. And, you know, that's why Elise is great at more of the managing of people side of it, because that's not as much my skill set. I can do it and I'm learning it and it's a great challenge and I, and I love my people, but I'm better at the big picture ideas than the skill sets that it takes to manage, which you're right, is a totally different thing. Do you think the lease or your number two is kind of the opposite skill set and passions as you? Yeah, I think, well, I think we're similar in a lot of ways, but she is, I think, more of a manager than I am in a great way. Yeah. You know, I remember reading Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know if you've read it, but in there, he has this story that he tells about the difference between managers and leaders. Mm -hmm. And he says that managers are people who make sure that things are being done right. 
And leaders are people who make sure that you're doing the right things. And he describes the difference between a manager and a leader. If you are a, you know, a team of people cutting your way through the jungle and there were the doers who are actually cutting the way through the jungle, the manager would be the one who made sure that the, the tents were all set up and they weren't leaking or if they were, they were fixed and the machetes were sharp and everybody had, you know, three square meals a day and there was, a, you know, an, enough, you know, entertainment and activity to keep the, the guys engaged and that was the manager's job. Very busy, lots of things, working very close with the team. The leader had one job. Every morning would climb the tallest tree next to camp and look out and go, okay, guys, we're going that way today. And then would climb back down and that would be the job. And I think as we all mature as business owners, we have to get out of the day-to-day -day management, certainly far away from the doing, and really spend more time up in the tree, figuring out what direction to take things. But most people don't do that. I'm wondering, how do you think your ability to see the, what's down the line and know what direction to take your business has helped you find success? I think you're 100% right. I couldn't have put it better myself. And it's something I struggle with, feeling okay with being the person who's climbing the tree and looking out and realizing that that does have value and is important. And I think Elise has been a huge part of saying like, your job is to, you know, do the things that you do and go on fam trips and record your podcasts and do sales and do networking and, you know, market the business. And that's what you need to be doing all the time. And it's like giving me permission because I love doing that. And, but I feel guilty doing that, but that's really where my time is best spent. I think in terms of, developing the business and making sure everything's running on time and that we're hitting our numbers and all that stuff. I love the math side of it. I love that. And, you know, Elise doesn't really want to deal with any of that, but she's so much better at being available 24 hours a day. When there's a problem, the team calls it, they know they can call Elise and Elise has a solution. She's a great problem solver. Yeah. My very first podcast that I was on uh, when I left Todd events and I was going off on my own as a consultant, I, I said something that has really stuck with me. And that is that when you're looking to hire your number two, you should find somebody who loves what you hate doing and who is incredible at what you suck at doing. And that's how you can add so much more to the pace of growth with your business. Oftentimes people make the, you know, the assumption that they need to clone themselves to yeah. be able to grow their business. That's not actually the case. In most situations, you want to find your complement, your opposite that can support the business and the team and the clients and the operations in ways that you can't yourself. I think that's right. I, I do feel very blessed and lucky to have that person by my side. You and I are also similar, Shannon, in the fact that we like to be in control. We like to lead. One of the challenges that I know a lot of business owners find when they grow beyond themselves as an enterprise is that they have to trust others to do the work. It's great to have Elise. Uh, what are some other things that you have done to make yourself feel comfortable <laughs> knowing that the bill of sale that you've created for this million dollar party or half million or whatever it is, is going to actually get done knowing that you can't be in the weeds with the people trying to figure out how to get it done yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know, we certainly have our systems and our, our ways of keeping everybody on track within the company. But I think one thing that was really hard for me to learn that I've embraced now is 
I'm the one who set up these systems, right? I love systems. I'm a systems gal. And in the beginning, I was like, everybody must follow these systems to a T. This is how we operate our business. And then some of the first few employees, like including Elise, were off the reservation doing their own systems. And I'm like, well, you need to have a bi-weekly phone call with the client. And Elise, like, I just pick up the phone and call the client when I need them. You don't, I don't have to have this agenda sending follow-up notes, you know. And I was so angry. Like, I have tried everything. This is what works. This is what you have to do. And then I was like, but her clients are thrilled. But her projects are flawless. But everything goes well and she does it differently. And then I realized, like, at the end of the day, what matters most is that the outcome is great. And if they get there a little bit of a different way, as long as, you know, to the outside world, all of our timelines look the same and all of that. If they get there a little bit of a different way, like that's okay. And that was really hard as a control freak to let go of initially. Now I embrace it. Do what works for you and your client best. Yeah. That trust is earned. It's not given. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever run into an experience where you gave too much trust and it ended up backfiring? I think I've learned that there really is a lot of training that needs to go into a person before they can really take on their own projects. And I think I've also learned that someone who makes a great production assistant might not make a great lead planner, that a lot of it is personality. A lot of it is confidence. It's saying yes and figuring it out later, but saying yes with confidence. And if you're not the type of person that can you know, fool people with your confidence and figure out how to do it, if, you, if fear is shown on your face, the clients will lose trust in you pretty quickly. So I'm, you know, I think I've gotten better at identifying who I can put on a job and what kind of training they need. But that was, you know, a bit of a learning by what's it called? Hit and miss. What's it called? Learning mm -hmm. by trial and error. It was trial and error to figure that out, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I think there are lessons that we that we learn along the way. The key is to not make the same mistake twice. It's okay to make mistakes. You know, we, we all learn from those, but we want to make sure we're limiting the number of times we repeat them. I, you know, I can think back to lots of situations where I had too much trust in people. And, you know, as a manager, I learned there are five things that we're responsible for setting clear expectations, providing adequate tools and resources to complete the job, uh, excellent training, measuring performance and providing feedback. Those are the things that we do over and over and over again. And oftentimes, I think business owners are just so grateful to have the help to come in and relieve them of, you know, too much work or something that they don't like doing or, you know, whatever, an urgent need that you just throw somebody in. And because you could do it, you expect that they can do it, too, now that you have somebody in there with a, you know, a beating heart and two legs and two arms. But it's not the case. They, they need more time. You know, people need 10 times more training than you would ever want to give them. It just sets things off on on the wrong trajectory, and it's a it's a hard it's a hard lesson to learn. But once you learn it, and once you know it, you can do a lot of easy things to prevent it from happening. Easy, I don't know about easy, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about simple? <laughs> how about simple things? <laughs> um, t tell me a little bit about what it's been like outside of the work environment, you know, obviously as an entrepreneur, you want to make sure that you're, you know, whether it's the work-life balance uh, that, you know, people might talk about, or if it's your own version of it, what's it been like to be a wife, be 
a mom, be a friend, be a family member, be Shannon and not Shannon Leahy events. Big Shan. That's my alter ego. Big Shan. I love it. That's all you're going to get from me. I'm changing it in my contact list. When you own your own business, there certainly is a lot of bleeding over into your personal life. I'm so grateful that my husband is an incredible support and has a very flexible job. He's a writer, very talented one. And because of that, he can kind of make his own hours. I think if he had a very demanding job where he was in an office, it would be a lot harder for our family to do what we do. But, you know, you, I really try um, at five o'clock to shut off my computer for at least two hours so I can have that time with my kids in the evening. That's really important to me. I think my, I have two young kids, so they're five and two. So in this season in my life, it's all work and family. I do make time for friendships, but that is definitely the part that gets put on the back burner these days because I do love my work. And I really feel like the women that I work with and men that I work with as vendors, relationships and partners are friends of mine too, as I think many of us feel in this industry. So yeah, I don't know if that answers that question. Yeah. And I'm curious when you transition at say five o'clock or whatever time it is, do you have like a winding down strategy that you do to kind of turn things off and be present with your family or, or whatever it is that you're doing? Do you have a routine no, that you follow? Something that I need to work on because I used to have a commute when I was based in San Francisco, I had my office and I would come home and it would be a transition of space. But now that I work out of my home, it is a very short transition to walk through those doors over there. So no, it's something that I think is a good idea to have, but something that I haven't quite figured out yet. Yeah. You know, I think I, you and I were talking before we started recording about uh, the book, Deep Work, Cal Newport. And uh, I think I read it in there. He talks about having a shutdown routine, just like you would turn your computer off. You, like if you just pulled the plug, it would not be good for the computer over the long term. It's the same way with how we are at work. We need to have a routine where we shut things down in order. And I'm always curious I, what it is that people do. do you I, have I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I I think when I'm at my best, I do. Um, I I I I changed my definition of uh, you know what it was for me to achieve success about three years ago, and I shifted it from achievement, uh, you know, achieving whatever it was, whatever goal, uh, professionally or you know, with my clients, and I instead started with my kids. And uh, with my wife and my life outside of work, I realized that I didn't want to make more money. I wanted to have more time. Yeah. That was why I got into business in the first place. Like you, it was autonomy and independence. And I found that my business was starting to own me instead of me owning my business. And so I made a pact with myself that I would do everything I could to stop work at 4 p.m., not work again until 8 a.m. the next day. And I would take weekends off and I would travel 100 days a year. And I would build a business that served those needs. And so that's been my goal for the last three years. And I have developed a winding down routine where I am done at four. Uh, my kids are home at 3.30 and then, you know, they get settled in, have a snack, do some homework and I'm freed up. I find that jumping on a bike like a Peloton or I'll go for a walk. We live in a rural area. So, you know, we, we have roads without without traffic on it really. And I'll do like a two mile loop sometimes with Katie 
And that's like my commute, you know, whether I'm, you know, biking or, or walking, I, I can burn some energy and it clears my head. And then I come back and I'm energized, but I'm also present because I'm, not, I've already decompressed and processed all of the things that I was thinking about while I was out doing 30 or 45 minutes worth of exercise. Sounds amazing. Like only, only when I'm at my best self. <laughs> When you're at your worst self, for me, it's a glass of wine, which I'm trying to break because that's the easiest transition for a glass of wine, but necessarily the best for oneself. Yeah. Martini with three yeah. olives with blue <laughs> cheese. That's mine. Exactly. <laughs> what, what are the hardest parts of your job right now? What are the things that trip you up in your, the current iteration of Shannon Leahy events? I think for me, you know, as I kind of mentioned my entire success depends on my employees' happiness and well-being. And what scares me, I guess, or what was the question? What? Yeah, you know, what scares you? What's, what's the hardest part? Is, the hardest part is making sure that they're engaged, motivated, happy, and not burnt out and stressed. And yet, at the same time, kept busy. Because what is so tricky is, I know that we talked about how planners throw out six to eight weddings. And that's actually the metric we use for our lead planners, six to eight. But you know, six really small, easy weddings are very different than eight, five day million dollar weddings. And depending on what dates they fall in, that also really has a lot to do with your workload. So the hardest part is trying to spread everybody's workload so nobody burns out. And it's a it's very hard to do because maybe one project starts small and gets big. So it's it's not a perfect equation ever. And just, you know, trying to get that nailed is always a challenge. It's like a big logic puzzle, different than like a jigsaw puzzle. But you said you love puzzles, and this is yeah. <laughs> this is it. It's like it's like a bunch of moving pieces that you've got to make sure are positioned and staying balanced on the board without falling over the edge. Yeah, and I think that we've been lucky to realize that freelancers can really plug those holes. And making sure I'm aware when an employee is getting overwhelmed that I can call in support to help them. So, what does success look like for you in? you know, the coming, say, three years, you know, you've, you've, and I say this, and I, I can imagine you're going to either shake your head or, or, or blush, you know, you've, you've been on all the lists, Shannon, every list that's out there, you, you've received recognition, you work with incredible vendors, you do the biggest parties, you travel to amazing places, and, you know, you have full creative license on what you do. What's there for you, somebody who's so driven to achieve, What's on the horizon? What what motivates you right now when you're thinking of your goals? Well, we've got a great home base in San Francisco. We've done a, a great job of expanding to LA. So geographically, I'm excited about building our East Coast office and our work on the East Coast, which is a whole new team of vendors and locations. Building the East Coast is a challenge. And Sam, I wanna I wanna have a venue. Really? I do. So that is one of the next long-term goals, you know, professionally. But I think personally it is making sure I continue to find that balance, which I feel I have a pretty good one right now. And I'd like to keep that while taking on more great projects. So tell me about the venue. I'm always curious about this because planners always say the same thing. It sounds like <laughs> they're like, I want to, I want to do six to eight events a year working with really great clients and big budgets and have full creative license. I, then I want to make the list. And then after that, it's the venue. What's, I've been a venue manager. It's not amazing. I'll, I'll be honest. 
but a venue owner, I would imagine, would be kind of cool. <laughs> so you want to you want to own you want to own a venue? Do you want to build one from scratch? Is that kind of what you're thinking, or do you want to just take something and make it to be determined? I think that what that comes from is what we do is so temporary as event professionals, and it's so sad when you've spent so much time building something incredible and then it comes down the next day. So there's an idea of permanence with opening a venue that you can create something that a lot of people can enjoy. And and I want to create something that, you know, I don't intend to plan every wedding at that venue when I open it, but I want lots of people to be able to experience it and have a wonderful memory of that place and have that place live on for a long time. So I think, I think it's legacy, right? That's why a lot of people are excited about a venue. Yeah. I love that. Regrets. Any regrets as a business owner looking back over your whole career? Hmm. My biggest regret is honestly not firing people sooner when I knew they weren't a fit and not taking more time to hire people to ensure they were a fit. That's my biggest regret. Hire slow, fire fast. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. Another hard lesson to learn. Yeah. And because you you know, you love people. We all love people. And if you're in this industry, you love people. So you want to give people a chance, but it's just better. I mean, and I think that takes time probably to learn who's not a fit and identify that just like it takes time to identify that client. That's going to be your problem client. You know, but once you do realize it, then it's like the the quicker you can kind of move to the person that is the right fit, the better. Mm. How do you balance the kind of friendliness and camaraderie and collaboration of the workplace without overstepping the line of being too friendly, Mm. where you can't then make smart business decisions? Yeah, I think that's tricky. I think. You know, it's funny. Um, we did a, now that we're also distributed around the country, we've been doing these retreats and we did our first retreat last year. So of course I'm researching how to do a good retreat and there's all these. How to do a kick-ass retreat. retreat. (laughs) My autobiography one day. And it was all about these like trust falls and doing these really hard things like a ropes course to build camaraderie and trust in your team. And I was just laughing to myself, like, come to an event day with us and get through an 18 hour day on site in a really hard challenge and you will be bonded for life. Like, I think that what we do, it just like the people who are with me have been with me for years because once you've been through something really hard with someone, you really are bonded and you just have a love and a trust for them. That's hard to explain. It's very deep. So I think, you know, on the surface, we all have our own lives at the company, it's not incestuous. We don't, so we have our own social lives, but there's this basis of just, I would kill for you and you would kill for me and we've been through it together that makes us really close without overstepping boundaries, I guess. Uh, Tell me about your retreats. Is that something that uh, you found helpful to the team? I I know of several clients that I have and, and other people in the industry that I'm friends with who do that, especially in the planning space to do the equivalent of a, you know, annual offsite and go away for a few days. And uh, some people make it about work. Some people make it about, you know, play, you know, what, what, what kind of retreats have you done and, and, and what kind of value do you think they have for the company? Yeah. 
I mean, it's a great time. We have our, you know, our mission statement and our company values, and there's a lot of time and energy I spend in thinking about that stuff. And when people sign on with their job contract, they sign that, but then you never think about it again. So for me, the retreat is an opportunity to remind us all what we're about, to share the vision of the coming years, to hear feedback, to talk as a group about what's working and what's not. And then we intersperse it with a lot of like, you know, spa treatments and taking care of the girls and spoiling them because they deserve it. So it's a little bit of both. And we are, you know, we just, we had the pandemic. We had done a small one before then. And we last year went to Vegas this year. Our trip location is to be announced. So I can't share yet, but it's going to be wonderful. And I think they're good. I think that the team really, it helps everyone feel really connected. And because we're distributed, it's just FaceTime together too. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we have eight people on our team. We just hired our sixth full-time copywriter. And we're we're mostly in Texas. Katie and I obviously are in Washington, but we now have people in Maryland and Pennsylvania. Uh, in in May, we we took the team to Oregon Wine Country, which was fun. And in a few weeks, we're going down to Costa Rica for uh, five days. We invited spouses, no work, all play, and we're just going to have fun and relax. And that bonding is something that we found in May, and we know will happen in the next few weeks. Really important to the team. And, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're a business owner and you've got a team out there, you know, I, I, I would recommend wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's a little bit of money. It's a little bit of time away from work, but it's it'll pay dividends for months leading up to it and months afterwards. It brings the team together. And it's something that I think as a business owner, you can be proud of that you're doing something different and better than you probably got when you were working for somebody else. We did a lot of really fun exercise. One of the ones that we did that I remember fondly is that um, everybody wrote down something that they admire about every single other person. And we took turns going around the room and everybody reading aloud. And it was so cool to hear what people had to say about you and the themes that came up and things that you wouldn't have thought they thought. And I think it was just like a really fun, feel good thing. I liked that one. I think I'll I'll make a note of that and I'll put it as an activity right between chips and guac and more sangria, please. Sounds awesome. <laughs> All right. I got one last question for you, Shannon. And I love this one because it asks us to go back in time and think about what it was that we wish that we had known in the past. If you could have a conversation, a cup of coffee, a glass of wine with younger Shannon, 2009 Shannon, what's the best piece of advice that you would give her knowing what you know now in 2022? That's easy. Every failure that you encounter is an opportunity and, um, and you have to see it that way. So getting fired from my first job ended up being a huge opportunity. And when we've had situations, you know, where we have been fired by clients in my 15 years, it's happened once, maybe twice. And we learned something huge every time. And if we had an unhappy client throughout the process, it's so easy. And I see my peers do this to just blame the client. Like, oh, that was just a jerk. Or they had unrealistic expectations of what, you know. But if you go, what could I have done differently? And if you really look at why they were unhappy and how you could learn from it, how you could change your business 
to make that better the next time. We've completely redone a lot of our systems after having difficult clients and it's all for the better. So I think it's just anytime you feel like it's a failure, there's a, there's an opportunity there to get better. Yeah. I like that because if you want to be responsible for the wins, for the victories, you've got to also own up to the losses and obviously losses didn't go according to plan. And so you've got to make that improvement. I think it's hard sometimes too, when you're at a higher level and if you are only doing six to eight events a year or, or eight to 12 or whatever it may be, um, planner or photographer, videographer, station or whatever it is, it's, it's a long feedback loop. And when you have a long feedback loop, it's really hard to make iterations and make improvements. And so when the opportunities do come up, I think you're absolutely right. You've got to own up to a mistake and see it as an opportunity to get better and change things around. That's, that's how you get to where you are right now. It's not like you just need to pick a better client next time. You've got to do some things differently too. Yeah. It's not a straight line, right? No, no. It's, <laughs> when, when I do, when I do sales coaching or, uh, you know, a, a online presentation, I'll oftentimes draw the buyer's journey, you know, with the start and finish. And it's not a linear, you know, A to B. It's just like, scribble that looks like some sort of, you know, <laughs> nest that a bird created over, you know, years and years of lines going every direction and squiggling around. You know, I, I often think of the buyer's journey is very similar to the business owner's journey. It's not a straight line, you know, going from 2009 Shannon Leahy events to 2022 Shannon Leahy events isn't this, you know, slow, gradual, or even, you know, steep incline, it's, it's kind of, it's steps, it's, it's sidetracks, it's, you know, diversions, it's some shortcuts that you picked up here and there, but you know, no, path, no person's path to success is straight. No person's path to success is without failure. Yeah. I agree. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Well, tell us, Shannon, if people wanted to, hear more about your wise words and your wise ways and learn from them. Uh, you have a podcast too. I do. Um, how, Tracy, how do people, how do people connect with you? Yeah. Tracy Taylor Ward and I, Tracy Taylor Ward is a wedding planner in New York. The two of us have a podcast called wedded the wedding planner podcast, which is really fun because we talk a lot about the business of being a wedding planner and dealing with clients and, and everything else. And we compare notes on East coast versus West coast planning and all of that. We're also on Instagram, Shannon Leahy Events. Um, and I mentioned I'm a systems gal. Tracy and I also paired up and we sell our systems on weddedshop.com. Um, the templates and things that we use to run our business are available for purchase at that website. Yeah, L-E-A-H-Y. I don't know. People will probably see it on your podcast heading and can look it up. But that's how you sell my name. That's impossible to pronounce. <laughs> that's great, Shannon. And if you're listening to this, and you are a wedding planner and you want a shortcut, follow the blueprint that somebody else has created on how to do things well. And you will take so much time out of your path to success. So I hope you all do that. Yeah. I wish and when I started, I'll say that. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks, Shannon, for the insights and perspective and vulnerability. It's not easy to get in front of a microphone and talk about your your business, uh, getting fired, lessons learned, uh, <laughs> what it's like to be a boss, all of those things. So I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>